Hurricane Ian could be the deadliest storm to ever hit the U.S. state of Florida. It's one of many extreme weather events this year that have left millions homeless. What is making these disasters more common and more intense, and how do we better prepare for them? I'm Fully Batibo, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, let's bring in our guests now for today's Inside Story. In Tallahassee, Bradford Johnson, Assistant Professor of Geography and a PhD in Meteorology at Florida State University. In Utrecht in the Netherlands, Martin van Aalts, Director of the International Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Center and a Professor of Climate and Disaster Resilience at the University of Twenty. And in Islamabad, Fahad Saeed, the South Asia and Middle East Regional Climate Scientist with Climate Analytics. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for joining us. Bradford Johnson in Tallahassee, let me start with you. Hurricane Ian went from a tropical storm to a hurricane in less than 24 hours. And it's not the only storm that's recently experienced this rapid intensification, as they're calling it. What is behind this and, and what is making these storms more intense and more frequent. That's right, and thank you for having me on the show today. Um, it's really, like you mentioned, a, a long line and a series of storms over the past five to 10 years um, that have found their ways into the Gulf of Mexico. And as we have found out throughout the data that the sea surface temperatures and the environment conducive to the strengthening of storms in the Gulf of Mexico have um, been tracking above average from historical values. Um, for instance, with Hurricane Ian, it traversed over waters that were over 30 degrees Celsius um, in the northwestern Caribbean before it encountered waters that were more than two degrees Celsius above expected values off the southwestern coast of Florida. Um, this, along with um, conducive atmospheric conditions, allowed the storm, like its predecessors, to effectively drop pressure very quickly, causing the wind speeds to ramp up very fast. Mm. So global warming, you would say, is affecting this. It's, it's leading to the storm intensification. A preponderance of research has shown that warming around the globe is causing water temperatures, um, not only in the tropical oceans, but also in areas north or poleward of the tropics, um, to trend above average from what we've expected to see over the last 30 to 50, even 100 years. Um, in particular, with the Gulf of Mexico, the loop current, which feeds water from the Western Caribbean. Um, and if you might know, it also feeds the Gulf Stream, which then actually heats Europe on the latter, on the latter end of it. Its waters have been tracking warmer as well, and it's a relatively deeper pool of warm water, which effectively acts as more fuel for these storms. All right. Fahad in Islamabad, talk to us about your experience in Pakistan. What role has climate change played in the intense weather events we've seen in that region this year? Yeah, thanks, Foley, for having me, first of all. And uh, as, you, as the fellow speaker has said, that uh, we have also found the role of climate change in exacerbating the impacts of the, uh, of the two of the extremes we have witnessed this year. So uh, the earlier heat wave in, in the months of March and April with Pakistan uh, witnessed, it was also record-breaking. And uh, uh, it was supposed to be a time of spring in Pakistan, but the temperature in parts of Pakistan rose above 50 degrees centigrade in, in some of the places. So it was just unprecedented uh, for the time of the year. And uh, I was a part of a study which was uh, led by Imperial College London, and it also had uh, uh, co-authors from 
University of Cambridge, Oxford, Columbia University, and so on. The finding of our study was that that particular heat wave, climate change, has exacerbated or made it uh, more likely by 30 times as compared to the world without climate change. Mm -hmm. And similarly, the second event which the country went through is the flooding. It was uh, uh, the worst the country has ever experienced since the, the record began. And uh, the, the similar study was conducted, which is called as climate change attribution study. And our finding from that study was that uh, the intensity of the monsoon rainfalls in two months in the months of uh, 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 August, uh, right. June, uh, July and August, the intensity was increased by 75% as compared to the world without climate change. All right. So we, ha we have quantitative analysis that uh, climate change has played a very important role in exacerbating the impacts of both the events. Martin in Utrecht, are we talking specifically about human-induced climate change here? How do socioeconomic factors intersect with climate impacts, whether in South Asia or in, in the Americas or in Africa. How is it worsening the, the uh, effects on people and the environment? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's, it's important to underline uh, what Fahad just said about the, the strong quantitative evidence that in many of these individual disasters, we have now a very clear fingerprint indeed of anthropogenic climate change. So we can draw a straight line from the emissions of greenhouse gases to the more intense natural hazards that we're now facing. However, it's always the combination of those hazards with the vulnerability of the societies that are hit by them mm -hmm. that then defines the impacts. And um, well, you may know the classical story of Bangladesh, where we've also been confronted with superstorms in the past couple of years. Um, Amphan, for instance, um, was a super typhoon uh, hitting Bangladesh and India. Um, in the 1970s, a storm like that would have killed hundreds of thousands of people, literally. Uh, but two years ago, that only resulted in 124 casualties. Of course, still very tragic. But thanks to a successful evacuation of 9 million people, we were able to avoid many deaths. Now, that doesn't mean there's no destruction. And climate change is still um, posing a very heavy toll on those countries. But it shows that there is a lot that can be done to avert some of the, the, the very worst impacts, even right. with rising hazards. And it's clear that we need to invest much more in those sorts of capacities in light of the more volatile climate that we're now in. Before we talk about what more can be done, I want to ask you, Martin, about the impact, a bit to give us a bit more, uh, you know, an example of, of the direct impact of these disasters. And, and, you know, what are the costliest weather-related incidents? Well, the costliest in terms of economic damages are often in the United States. Um, and then we're really talking $100 billion disasters. We don't have the toll yet for Florida right now. Uh, but for instance, five years ago, we, we did a similar attribution study that, that uh, Fahid was just talking about for Hurricane Harvey in Houston. That was over $100 billion for that disaster. And again, three times more likely due to climate change. So we, we have those numbers in terms of huge costs in places like that. When you're talking about human toll, mm. it is often places uh, like Pakistan. Um, the current drought in the Horn of Africa is one of our current, our, our biggest concerns in terms of humanitarian uh, concerns at the moment, possibly hundreds of thousands of people dying if we don't provide food aid there quickly. Uh, the fingerprint of climate change in those contexts is often more difficult because we don't have perfect data. Our models aren't as good for those places, but it's the same pattern of um, both uh, a rise in hazards, in that case, five rainy seasons in a row failing, 
but also very high vulnerability due to the poverty, the aftermath of COVID, the conflicts in the region. Mm. So um, that's that's always the pattern uh, that that those come together. And then, of course, in those very poor regions, you don't get a high, very very high economic toll, but the human suffering is multiplied. Bradford, um, Martin mentioned their data, and I guess having good data is key, isn't it? Is the climate crisis making forecasting more difficult? I would argue when it comes to forecasting, um, our forecasters are, are, have more tools available to them right now um, and more data available than any other time in history. Mm -hmm. However, there are areas that Martin just mentioned that are pretty data sparse and that do impact our ability to forecast. For instance, on Hurricane Dorian that developed a few years back, um, it may have actually delayed its initiation because of the amount of Saharan dust that was present over the tropical Atlantic at that time. And as we know, um, that Saharan dust is a, is a product of desertification and drought in sub-Saharan Africa and the Sahel region. Um, but once Hurricane Dorian was actually able to develop, it may have actually intensified faster because of the warmer sea surface temperatures that were available to it to tap into um, once it reached the Bahamas and off the coast of Florida and moving up the eastern coast of the United States. Um, so when we think about the actual forecasts themselves, we found that the cone of uncertainty that we like to focus on um, over the years has shrank, as in the general day three and day five errors have decreased. But um, it's becoming pretty evident now that even other factors that may be possibly related to climate change, like the steering flows and the slowing of storms and as they approach the coastline off North America, are also making it more difficult on forecasters to communicate what the hazards might be, particularly when it relates to inland flooding, which most people do not associate with tropical cyclone landfalls. All right. So we've started talking about the impact, of course, but we've also got to talk about what more can be done to prevent these disasters from becoming uh, so frequent and intense. Hurricane Ian could be one of the most expensive ones, as you heard from Martin. An early estimate put the cost of uh, damage at up to $47 billion for Florida alone. Economists say funding to combat climate change is facing a two-front battle, mitigation and adaptation. The U.S. military is injecting cash into adapting hardware and infrastructure to cope with extreme weather after various bases were damaged by hurricanes. The Pentagon's budget just for climate is $3.1 billion. The International Monetary Fund recommends a tax on coal, oil products, natural gas that's to lower the amount being pumped into the atmosphere. It also calls for nations to adapt infrastructure to better prepare for severe weather. The World Bank delivered a record $31.7 billion this year to address global climate change, mostly to developing nations. Just under half of that will be spent on adapting infrastructure. So uh, let me come to you, Fahad, in Islamabad. There are, of course, ways to reduce the widespread destruction these storms leave in their wake. How do we better prepare, in your view, for these intense storms, intense weather events in the future? How do we reduce the damage and the loss? Yes. Uh, so, Foley, uh, the first thing is that since um, also the other speakers has, uh, have said that uh, that we, we have found the fingerprints of climate change already. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, the heat waves and flooding is not foreign to this part of the world if, uh, in Pakistan. But the problem is that because of climate change, because of uh, warmer temperatures, we are now having uh, uh, these uh, events more frequent and also the intensity uh, of, of those events are such that they are uh, crossing the red limit of, uh, of the 
uh, you know, in place adaptation uh, measures, the, which the people are acclimatized for, uh, for, for hundreds of years. So another problem is that currently we are 1.2 degrees centigrade warmer than the pre-industrial world. So I would say the first thing is that uh, the, the world should come together and decide mm. that uh, we, we need to reduce the emissions so as to curtail the temperature to 1.5 degrees centigrade according to the Paris Agreement limit. So anything beyond, for, for a country like Pakistan, every tenth of a degree matters at the moment because now we have quantitative assessment of the, uh, of the role of climate change in exacerbating the, uh, the you know, intensity of these hazards. Right. So the first thing I would say is to contain the uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And the other thing is to, of course, provide uh, the necessary assistance uh, for, the, for the countries like Pakistan because mm -hmm. uh, the contribution of Pakistan uh, in total greenhouse gas emissions at the present level is less than 1%. Right. And if you consider the historical emissions starting from uh, two, two and a half centuries ago, so the contribution falls to 0.3%. So this is a big issue of climate justice. So uh, the countries like Pakistan, uh, and there are also other countries who have con contributed literally nothing to the uh, greenhouse ga uh, gas emissions. The levels we are con uh, uh, currently, currently witnessing uh, uh, but uh, on the other hand, uh, those are the ones who are the forefront, who are the be bearing the brunt of climate change, mm. especially if you look within Pakistan. So, of course, the people who are uh, associated with agriculture, they have nothing to contribute. They don't have uh, strong houses, well-built houses that, that can uh, face the fury of the nature uh, right. in terms of these extreme events. So they are the ones at the front lines. So this is a huge uh, uh, problem of climate injustice not only uh, at the global scale, but also the social injustice within the country as well. So uh, the, the international negotiation... Uh, 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 right. Let, let's bring in Martin. Uh, we, we hear your thought Sorry, there, and that's, it's very interesting what you're saying. Martin, uh, okay. as Fahad just said there, with these extreme weather events like the super floods in Pakistan, it is countries that contribute less to the carbon emissions uh, that are the worst affected. What can be done for these countries and who pays the price for climate reparations? Yeah, well, it's very clearly those countries and especially the poorest people in those countries are currently paying the highest price. And, and it's unfair because they have contributed the least to the problem. So I think that is an ethical uh, issue uh, in front of world leaders at the moment, uh, as they were meeting recently at the United Nations General Assembly and will be meeting again at COP27 in, e in, in Egypt in early November. Um, in a very practical sense, uh, the recipe is indeed very simple. Uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has assessed all the world's evidence, and it's concluded that we are already seeing aggravated humanitarian disasters due to climate change today. And all the examples that we've been discussing uh, show that. They are also very clear, as Fahad mentioned, that every tenth of a degree will add to that burden. So, uh, And we are reaching limits to adaptation already today, and we'll reach more and more as the temperature rise continues. So it's critical that we reduce emissions as quickly as we can. Mm. But at the same time, as, as I mentioned, the, the damage is to some extent already there in terms of the emissions that we've done in the past. So we need to adapt to the climate that has already changed and that will get more challenging, especially in these most vulnerable countries. Yeah. So we need to see uh, an increase in investment to uh, help especially these, these 
most desperate places to prepare for but this Martin, more volatile when, climate. Martin, when you have other issues like governance and poverty and the coronavirus pandemic, it becomes difficult for climate action plans to work because governments, especially in these low and middle income countries, have other priorities. So how do you bridge that gap? And, you know, there's a big difference, I understand, uh, in the money, in, uh, between the money being spent right now uh, to prevent climate change and, and, and you know, the one... Uh, in terms of adaptation and so on. So how do you bridge that gap? Well, that's, that is a big challenge, you know, and even our humanitarian uh, support in the aftermath of disasters is under heavy strain. We're not reaching all of the people that are in need of help, and we're struggling to, to, uh, to cope with the, the rising toll uh, of all these events around the world. So that in itself is already a challenge, uh, but only response is also not going to be enough. And we found out in the humanitarian world also that just responding more and more isn't going to do it. Our estimates are that by 2050, we could see a doubling of the, uh, the, the, the funding needed to help people in need, uh, again, dependent on the climate scenario, but also how we prepare. And I think that is the key message. Uh, it is going to be cheaper and more effective to, to, to provide some of that funding in advance. Okay. Uh, and that is indeed challenging uh, in places that are already poor, that face so many constraints at the same time. And in fact, with COVID, for instance, we're seeing the double whammy of people having been left very poor after COVID and then struggling even harder to cope with the shocks that are now coming to them from the climate. Right. Uh, but many of the solutions that are needed aren't super expensive. I mean, the, the early warning systems that I mentioned that have been so effective in Bangladesh, uh, they require planning in advance. They require collaboration between meteorological service, and in that case, the Bangladeshi Red Crescent, to make sure that the uh, the warnings uh, for such a major storm, which, as we heard before, have been getting so much better in recent decades, right. that are communicated effectively to those local people. And those local people know what to do. And then you need to have shelters in place that they can go to. But all of that is a little bit of infrastructure investment. It's a lot of capacity investment. So yes, we do need a lot of funding, particularly also to cope with the impacts we're already seeing. Uh, but it's also putting it to the best use, and that is often in those local communities. Bradford, from a meteorological perspective, how can we better prepare for these extreme weather events because of climate change? Um, I'd like to actually talk briefly about what, what he just just mentioned, um, in that it's not just a state-sponsored fiscal issue that we're dealing with as far as the infrastructure. Um, we're also, particularly in Western nations, it is but it is imperative that private sector companies effectively become the engine toward this um, because private sector and, and 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 the markets dictate so much of what goes on as a, in regards to investments in the in these parts of the world it really is going to be up to us as meteorologists as scientists climate scientists to understand and meet what their actual desires are and for the most part it's the actual um, it's the satisfaction of their shareholders. So they're not, for the most part, going to do it out of the kindness of their hearts. But we have to understand and be able to understand what the value proposition is for these companies and how their operations could become more profitable in the future under a renewable, less um, invasive um, use of the world's resources, resulting in the, 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 the minimization of greenhouse gas emissions. As meteorologists and scientists, Moving forward, I think we have a, a increasing confidence, and particularly when you read the IPCC reports, of what the impacts of climate and climate change are. Unfortunately, where we are right now, it more than likely on average will probably be the coolest year for the rest of our lives.
However, that does not mean it has to be the beginning of an era of destructiveness. As long as we understand and we're communicating not only with our local governments and state governments and also national and international levels, but also with those companies and communities and shareholders and those disadvantaged and underrepresented communities who again bear the brunt of the actual impacts of these storms. Right. Fahad in Islamabad, so what actions can be practically considered, not just by governments by, and authorities, but by also, you know, uh, people uh, to, to scale up and reduce the risk of these uh, climate change-related uh, disasters? Uh, yes, so uh, before coming to your question, Fali, uh, so I will just take uh, a few seconds to say that it's not uh, only about the, uh, the climate finance, but along with that, uh, we also look forward from developed countries to, to support countries like Pakistan with transfer of technology. So uh, fellow speakers were talking about uh, the, the forecast of, the, uh, of, of such extreme events. So climate change is uh, surprising us every year almost. And, uh, and the state of the art tool, which are climate models, uh, they do not perform well over this part of the world, just because that those models are developed in the global north. So uh, uh, we also need some kind of uh, support in, in developing of uh, development of such tools, which are uh, also catering the, uh, which also cater the, uh, you know, characteristic of this re region as well, uh, the monsoon region, and as well as the capacity building support. So that is also very important. Mm -hmm. uh, now coming to your question, that of course Pakistan uh, countries like Pakistan, they need to put their house in order as well. So the local governments are non-existent in Pakistan. Uh, so, uh, uh, I mean, you can imagine that if you do not have a local uh, uh, government and uh, you face such a calamity, uh, uh, you, you're definitely going to struggle. And uh, also the institutional arrangement is very important. And we also need to learn from other countries, from other countries of the, uh, of the region, how to cope uh, with, with these kind of uh, disaster one, once they happen. So there's a lot uh, to be done and it's very important time for a country like Pakistan. Uh, to, uh, to, to start a grand debate around climate change because unfortunately for developing countries, climate change doesn't come at the top of the agenda, the political agenda. We, we have many other problems. So just to uh, put the things in perspective, uh, 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 Pakistan total exports uh, per year is almost 30 billion. And the estimated economic damages from this flooding only, I'm not talking about the heat wave, but only because of the flooding, mm. uh, it is estimated to be over 30, uh, 30 billion dollars. So, you know, and a uh, couple of uh, weeks back, Pakistan was kneeling before IMF for 1.17 billion bailout package. So you can imagine that, uh, of course, for, for, for example, the, the hurricane in Florida, it's uh, in the absolute terms, it is uh, much higher. Uh, your, your number is 100 billion. But for a country like Pakistan, which is already struggling, the size of the economy is very small. So this is a huge, uh, uh, you know, impact right. uh, because of this, uh, this flooding. Okay. So uh, definitely, so it's a, it's a global phenomena and we need to uh, bring the, the world on the, on the table. And yeah. uh, as uh, my fellow speaker has said, that COP27 COP is going to be very important. It needs a global collaboration. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for a very interesting discussion. Bradford Johnson, Martin Van Aal, Sten Fahad. Sahid. Thank you very much for joining us. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Calvin, Laura Burden-Manley and Ben Clark. Studio sound was by Phil Morrison. 
The program was edited by George Joseph, Lynn Nguyen, and Joe DeFries. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Monday.